Hebrews 5. I want to start a new series, and I want to teach on the principal doctrines of Christ. And there are six of them, and two reasons I want to teach on it. Number one, the Lord's stirring it in me to teach on it, but three reasons. Number two, Brother Hagin said every pastor should teach on these on a regular basis. If they're principal foundational doctrines, we need to have them. We need to know them. The wonderful thing is that the author of Hebrews, we're not sure who that was. Some say Paul, some say Epaphroditus. It doesn't matter. The author of Hebrews gave us six. That's it. And if we understand those, that's the foundation. And most of what the church divides itself over is not even in those foundational doctrines, which is pretty pathetic. But also, as we'll see this morning as I lay a foundation and move into the first point, if we can master these and continue to build upon them, they will ensure that we never become apostate and fall away, which is what everybody's dealing with right now. The spirit of apostasy is in the earth. The spirit of the great falling away is present. You and I don't serve Jesus with the same people we did 20 years ago. We're, we're watching folks leave church and never come back. We're watching folks leave church and go to an apostate church and think they can serve Jesus among sinful folks that don't want to repent of anything. So I'm going to read through this, and then I want you, we'll come back and hit some stuff. I may be a little all over the place this morning as I try to lay a foundation. And we're going to look at a New English translation as our text. But I want you to understand that one of the themes of Hebrews is that we're under a better covenant, and we don't draw back. We're under a better covenant, and we don't draw back. The threat of the Hebrew believers is that they were going to draw back under Judaism. But we also know Hebrews 10 says, uh, we are not of those that draw back unto perdition. So one fear is drawing back under the law in Judaism, but the greater fear is Christians drawing back unto perdition. So one of the themes of Hebrews 5 going into Hebrews chapter 6 is, if you draw back, and if you shrink back, you will be a candidate for apostasy. That is the denial of Christ and going to hell, though you once confessed Jesus as Lord. Now, I don't want to make doc doctrinal debates over once saved, always saved, or eternal security, the perseverance of the saints, or what have you. But what we'll see this morning in this text is very terrifying. So let's begin with Hebrews chapter 5. Uh, Elizabeth, throw that up. I'm going to read it in the New English translation. Let's begin in verse 10. Hebrews 5.10, and he was designated by God as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. On this topic, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain since you have become sluggish in hearing. Let me stop there. The New English translation says, um, you are, uh, this is hard because you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen anymore. You are spirit, he, the author is telling a church, you are spiritually dull and you don't seem to listen. May that never be our testimony. The author of Hebrews says, I'd like to tell, us, tell you more about the Melchizedek priesthood, but it's a complicated issue and you guys are dimwits. So we don't get to know anything else about Melchizedek because the Hebrew believers had backslidden. Let's keep reading. For though you should in fact be teachers by this time, you need someone to teach you the beginning elements of God's utterances. You have gone back to needing milk, not solid food. You have gone back. There's that theme. Gone back. We've gone back. We've gone back. We cannot afford to go back. We go onward. It's an upward calling. There is no retreating. Notice these believers. He said, by now you should all be teachers. 
We have demonstrated for several years around here, it only takes two to three years to go from new believer to leader in the body of Christ. How long has it taken you? Because we have an indicting statement here against the Hebrew church. It's a group of Hebrew believers. You should, in fact, be teachers by this time. You ought to be able to have your own Bible study. We ought to trust you to teach a Sunday school class. But he says we can't. You've gone back to milk. Not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced in the message of righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature whose perceptions are trained by practice to discern both good and evil. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, we must progress beyond the elementary instructions about Christ and move on to maturity. Another theme is progression, advancement. How long have you been held in an infantile holding pattern? Not laying this foundation again, and he goes on to list the foundations, six foundation stones. Repentance from dead works, we will cover that this morning. Faith in God, teaching about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, uh, we intend to do if God permits. The author is saying we'll come back and circle around and teach on these six in this epistle, if God permits, and he never permitted. <laughs> For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Now he's throwing the Hebrews under the microscope because they were once enlightened, but they should have been teachers, but they were not teachers. They had gone back. So now he's bringing this back to bear on them. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good work of God and the miracles of the coming age, and then have committed apostasy. Remember he said, you've gone back. And the author is saying, you've gone back. And if you keep going back, you will eventually commit apostasy. He's telling them you're heading in the direction of hell all because they neglected the foundational doctrines. They and then have committed apostasy. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they are crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again and holding him up to contempt. Now he uses a parable. For the ground that has soaked up the rain that frequently falls on it and yields useful vegetation for those who tend it receive a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, what? The same ground that receives the same constant rain. Here are the Hebrew believers. They've been hearing the constant teaching of the word, and they have not produced vegetables. They have produced thorns and thistles. And he warns them, it is useless and about to be cursed. Not a huggy, encouraging, best Tuesday afternoon ever passage. But then again, most of the New Testament lacks those. That ground, if it produces thorns and thistles, is useless and about to be cursed. Its fate is to be burned. But in your case, dear friends, even though we speak like this, we are convinced of better things relating to salvation. <laughs> so there's his little hope in the end. So let's go back to chapter 5 here. He says in verse 11, and we can, I guess we can use... New English translation here. He says, I want to say more things to you 
And it's difficult to explain because you have become sluggish in hearing, or we said, as the New Living Translation says, you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. The Bible tells us in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing and hearing. But what if you don't have ears to hear? And that's why when we come to church, our ears should be open. We should be committed to hearing. What is God saying to me? Like we talked about in the offertory, hearken doesn't mean just listen. Hearken means listen and obey, listen and do. And that is why we encourage you to take notes, because if you're here and you're hearkening, the Lord will say something to you and you'll write it down because it convicts you. It won't be the same thing your neighbor wrote down because it wasn't for them. It was for you. You must then go and do that. If you get to a place where you just cease taking notes or you cease listening, you'll listen and listen and listen, but you won't get anything. And that sets you up to become thorns and thistles because the rain is coming. The rain of God's word falls upon you constantly. It falls upon you constantly. But you're not producing fruit. You're producing thorns and thistles. And the end of that is cursing and burning. And yet it's the same ground that if it wanted to, could produce fruit. So if we're not producing fruit in an area, we must figure out why not. What's your reason? Not an excuse. What's the reason? We got to be honest. I don't want to. I don't want to produce fruit. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to let go of that sin. I don't want to get up earlier. Sunday school is not important to me. Tithing, I don't believe in. You have to have a reason for why you're fruitless. But also know this. There is no ground on planet earth that gets rain that doesn't grow something. Every ground that has rain grows something. And yens to speak local, yens get rained on. So you're growing something. But isn't it interesting that Hebrews 6 says it infers that the word of God can be rained upon or rained upon you and you take it and grow thorns with it. This is how Christians can come to church and fornicate. This is how Christians can come to church and be potheads and stoners. This is how Christians can come to church and walk in unforgiveness. They're being rained upon by the word of God, but they choose not to do. And that's a dangerous place to be, according to the author of Hebrews. For though you should, in fact, be teachers by this time, we can stop there. How long does it take you to learn something enough to teach it to someone who knows nothing? There's a handful of newer people here, but the rest of you have been here a longer time. Are you capable of hosting a Bible study on your job for folks that don't go to church? And if not, why not? Why would you not invite a couple folks to the break room at lunch and say, let's, let's have a Bible study? Just, I would almost encourage some of you, just some of you, maybe your antenna's up and you're looking for a challenge. Just take it upon yourself to move about your job and say, you know what? Come August 1st, I'm going to start a bi-weekly Bible study at lunch. Who wants to come in on me? You'll get one or two. Always will. Do you have anything to say to them? And why wouldn't you try it? This whole church is being condemned because you say you should be teachers by now, but you need someone to teach you the beginning elements of God's utterances. You have gone back to needing milk, not solid food. Now, here's what we need to understand. The Bible talks about milk and meat. When you study King James, it uses the word meat. We assume meat is steak. Meat just means solid food. 
Most modern translations pull that out. It just says food. So milk is one type of teaching and responsibility in the kingdom, and food or meat is another type of teaching and responsibility. Jesus Christ gave us the key for this in John chapter 4, about verse 34, woman at the, uh, woman at the well. And he said, I have meat you know not of. And they said, did somebody sneak him some bread? And he said, my meat is to do the will of my father. So when we talk about going back and needing milk as opposed to meat, we're talking about folks who don't want to do anything. They just want to listen. Jesus said, my meat, my food is to do. So when we talk about the food or the meat of God's word, we've often taken upon us this connotation that meat is this deep, hard doctrine, and it's really thick, and it's really all oh, just meat, the meat of God's word. Anything you teach from God's word should be savory. But when you think about milk, you don't use your jaws to consume milk. But you use your jaws and your tongue to consume food because it has to be processed. And there's work involved. There's hardly any work involved in suckling. But there's a lot of work involved in chewing a sandwich or chewing a steak or chewing vegetables. So you see the difference is they went back and their going back meant they went from doing something to doing nothing. They just wanted to sit and listen. So we can easily talk about those that just want to come and spectate. The body of Christ that spectates will not make heaven. Not in the day that we live in. They won't be strong enough. You have become as those, you've gone back, and you become those who need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced. Experience comes by doing. So here's confirmation. Everyone who uses milk... Everyone who lives on milk, verse 13, is inexperienced. So we can't allow inexperience to be our excuse. You ought to be chomping at the bit to get up and do something for God. That's why we make the helps ministry available. It gives you experience. It's why you're supposed to live your Christian walkout on the job. It gives you experience. It's why you should live your Christian walkout with your neighbor in your neighborhood because it gives you experience. But if you don't ever live it, you have no experience. You're just a bottle-sucking baby. So we need to have experience in the Word of God. It says that everyone who lives on milk, we should not be there. There is a season where you need to come in and just sit under the Word of God. I get it. Maybe you, you buried your loved one. Maybe you're going through hell on earth and you don't, I just need to take a month off. Can I just sit in service? Yes, but that's not living on milk. That's a season where you need to be refreshed. Just like everybody gets sick from time to time, unfortunately, and you need to lay up in bed for half a day or maybe two days if it's the flu. But that's not how you're living. That is a very short season. Everyone who lives on milk, verse 13, is inexperienced in the message of righteousness because he is an infant. This tells us you can be born again a long time and still be a baby. And it, it doesn't impress us how long you've been in a church or how long you've spoken tongues. If you are living on milk and you're a spectator, you're just a babe in Christ. Let me ask you this. What do infants contribute to a household? Nothing. Do they make a paycheck? They clean up after themselves? They clean the kitchen? They cook lunch? Make their bed? Change their diaper? What do babies contribute to the house? Nothing. 
Are they important? Absolutely. Would you lay your life down for them? Yes. Are they a lot of work? All of it. All of the work. That's the baby. Do they rob you of sleep? Yes. Patience? Yes. Peace? Yes. Money? Uh Uh-huh. Huh. Joy? A little bit. Yeah, so do baby Christians. What do they contribute to the local house? Two things. Jack and squat. At least Jack's born again. (laughs) You should not be a baby Christian. Spectator Christians are babies forever. Back row Christians who don't serve, forever perpetual infants contributing nothing. It's okay to be a baby when that's the stage you should be in. But all of us who've raised kids know that when they start walking and talking, they instantly want to start helping and doing. I want to help. Let me help. I help daddy. I want my, they want to grow up. But some Christians, they don't ever want to grow up. They don't ever want to contribute anything. They'll never lift a hand in the house of God. They'll never have an experience with God. I wonder if they're even saved. The Baptist would say, you know, fruit, you were never saved to begin with. I agree with that to some degree. Because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature. That is, the doing of the word is for the mature, whose perceptions are trained. Now, let's look at this because we said milk is not doing anything. Meat is doing something. Solid food is for the mature, whose perceptions, that perception means you're already doing something, you're perceiving. That's a verb. They are trained. That's a verb. By practice, that's an action. So automatically tied to the meat of God's word are three verbs, three actions. Perceptions, trainings, and practices. To discern, there's another verb. In that one verse, we confirm that mature people are busy doing for God. And yet, the author of Hebrews tells the Hebrew church, this isn't you. We could all find ourselves there. When we ought to be teachers, we're babies. When we ought to be doing, we're sitting on our hands. When we ought to be contributing, we're taking away. And there's nothing wrong with the baby being a baby in the baby stage. But if the baby is 16 years old and still needs that kind of constant care, we would recognize that that baby is developmentally stunted, mentally retarded. Something's wrong and will require care the rest of its life. But that shouldn't be any one of us spiritually. If it is us spiritually, it's by our own choice and willful rebellion against God's calling. God does not give you permission to sit and contribute nothing to the local church. You're not permitted to sit and contribute nothing to the kingdom. When's the last time you shared your faith with somebody you didn't know? When's the last time you offered to pray for a total stranger? When's the last time you contributed? I mean, the Lord spoke to us a couple years ago in noonday prayer that the day of suburban Christianity is dead. You don't get to just live Christianity at your Baptist Wednesday dinners and go home and go play AYSO soccer with a bunch of churchgoers and just be in your comfortable middle-class suburban condos. It's dead. Suburban Christianity is dead. When's the last time you were aggressive with your faith and shared it and witnessed to someone and prayed for someone? They didn't come to you. You went to them to give them the hope you've got, to give them the deliverance you've got, to give them the peace you've got? Or are you just still breastfeeding? It's weird when you got whiskers and you're nursing. I don't think mama's going to be too happy with that. None at all. Solid food is for the mature, 
That's the doing of God's word. It's for the mature, and it will mature you. There's nothing like experience. Just get out there and learn. Whose perceptions are trained by practice to discern both good and evil. So let's move on to chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, we must progress. That means grow up. King James says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ. We must progress beyond the elementary instructions about Christ and move on to maturity. Every babe wants to grow up. They even make toys that help little boys learn how to be carpenters, or how to be soldiers, or how to be mechanics. And little girls have toys about little kitchen. They don't make kitchenette sets for little boys. There was no Gordon Ramsay to look up to when I was a kid. Some kind of British chef who's got weird hair and bad taste. Well, Mama didn't let us play with pots and pans, not unless we turned it into an army helmet, took the spoon and made it a gun, and the salt pepper became a grenade. That's... You're preparing for adulthood as a child because you want to grow up. And then you get born again, and you want to live like a pagan. But come to church because that's what we do. We've got to mature. We've got to progress beyond elementary instructions. The six things we're going to spend the next six weeks teaching on are what the Bible calls elementary things. And they should not be heavy duty to us. You ought to know them. If you don't know them, I would wonder how long have you been saved like the doctrine of baptisms. Can you give me all five baptisms of the New Testament? Which of them apply to you and which don't? How come the Church of Christ just want to get wet but know nothing about tongues? What about the most important baptism of all into the body of Christ? What about the one nobody, not even the best word of faith, wants to talk about? That's the baptism of affliction. These are elementary things, and some of you are still going, wait, what? Oh. We've got to move on, not laying this foundation again, though he says, admittedly, we're going to have to. So let's look at this foundation, because if we don't have a foundation, we'll, we'll deny Christ, we'll walk away from him. If you don't have a foundation, no matter what you build, it will eventually rot and crumble. When you see these old country pole barns, pole barns, these are barns that are based on telephone poles, basically, or even before then, before they were creosote treated, just trees. They have no foundation. Those poles are just sunk into the dirt. They don't last long because termites, because of wood rot. When you have no foundation, you can build something great, but it won't last long. And the day that we're living in is causing severe rot. The insects, the Lord of the flies, and the Lord of the termites are just eating Christians inside out. But if you can lay a foundation, you have something solid to build upon. So this first thing he says is repentance from dead works. So the first foundation stone, and what we're going to talk about with the time we have left this morning, is this foundational stone, this principal doctrine called repentance from dead works. This implies instantly a couple of things. Number one, we ought to be good at repenting. Repentance is part of living for Jesus. Now, there is a very popular heresy right now with really shiny Christian television ministries which says you don't have to apologize or repent. Try that in your marriage, knucklehead. Can you imagine the heresy coming off of Christian television that says because we're forgiven by Jesus, we never have to say I'm sorry. 
How does that work for your marriage? Do you expect your kids to apologize to each other? Do you ever apologize when you do something wrong? Or are you just that arrogant, cocky, and just reprobate that you don't think you owe anybody an apology? There's not even humility in that. How could that ever be a doctrine that we never have to repent? Because we're already forgiven in Christ. That's not even good manners. Pagans are smarter than that. And yet it's a common, popular doctrine that has made some men very, very rich because nobody wants to have to feel sorry. But if the foundational principle doctrine is, number one, repent, then we ought to be good at it. Practice it with people you're closest to because they'll be the quickest to forgive you. Practice it with those people who you can see before you try it with the God you can't see. But every one of us ought to be good at repenting, telling our wife we're sorry, telling our husband we're sorry, telling our parents, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Telling God, Lord, please forgive me. It will keep you humble. He calls it repentance from dead works. We must be really good at repenting to turn and go the other direction. It doesn't just mean I'm sorry, but it means you don't do it again. Sometimes you have to learn a new behavior. We're going to always end up repenting to our spouse or the people we love the most because we're always going to end up stepping on them. But you shouldn't step on the same toe twice. At least move over two toes and step on that one and then apologize for that. But sometimes when you're carnal in your marriage, you know how to push buttons and you enjoy doing it. And you shouldn't. That's pagan and immature. Amen. So repent means turn and go a different direction. The, the irony, the heresy of the hyper grace coming out of Christian television is that if I never have to repent, then I'm always going the right direction. To repent means to turn and go a different way. If I don't have to repent, then it automatically says that I'm always, always, always going the right direction. Of course, that violates a lot of scripture. Like there's a way that seems right unto a man, but then there is death. So if I turn and go a different direction, is that not repentance? Usually if it makes a preacher rich, it's a false doctrine. And it's very easily challenged and undermined through scripture. It implies this first doctrinal stone. It implies that we must judge our works. Look at uh, Acts chapter 26. We'll look at a couple verses here. Acts 26. We won't have to turn anywhere on this, Elizabeth. Acts chapter 26. This is Paul speaking to King Agrippa. Acts 26, 19. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but I showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance, or do works that prove they have repented. Same thing John the Baptist started off preaching. Repent and bring forth fruit meet for repentance, or be baptized and bring forth fruit meet for repentance. In Luke's gospel, John's preaching, and he's hardcore. He is fire and brimstone, and everybody's coming out to see him. And the Jews are so terrified, not the Pharisees or the Sadducees, they come later. The Jews say, what should we do? And he said, share what you have. Because that affects the Jewish selfishness. And then the tax collectors say, what should we do? He said, don't take more money than you should. And then the soldiers asked John the Baptist, this is Luke's gospel, what should we do? 
And he said, quit extorting people and be content with your wages. He was nailing them where their sin was because they needed to repent. Paul said the gospel declares that we should repent, turn to God, there's the direction change, and then do works that prove we've truly repented. How do you know what those works are unless you judge them? So repentance from dead works means we're constantly judging what we're doing. But it also implies that we should have some works to begin with. Again, that comes back to bottle-sucking Christians who don't do anything for the kingdom. They just come to church. So where you should begin is actually putting your hand to the local church. Can you imagine going to heaven and never once sharing your faith? Wouldn't that be subtle Christ denial? If you got to heaven and the Lord said, did you ever tell anybody about me? And you said, no. How could you have ever claimed to have confessed Christ? Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shy person. That's no excuse. I'm an introvert. That's no excuse. I was done wrong by a total stranger once. Go to Walmart. <laughs> They're rolling back prices and manners every time you go. <laughs> You don't have excuses. Some of you, I need to get you into heaven because I don't think you're going to make it. And the rest of us, I got to make sure we have rewards once we get there. I'm telling you again, there's not a pastor I know that looks at his congregation and says, if the rapture happened today, the whole church would go. Churches will have remnants left in them once the resurrection of the dead takes place, which means some of you here, you will be left. The final principle doctrine of Christ is the resurrection of the dead. And you don't have newness of life in you, so you got nothing to resurrect. I don't think every person in this room right now would go in the rapture if it happened now. Because you don't have fruit. A fruit tree without fruit is just a stick with leaves. So where's your fruit? Well, you come every service, big whoop. We're talking about repentance from dead works. You're quiet. It implies that we should have works to begin with. So dead works we can classify as two things because we're repenting from dead works. That's the first foundational stone that is part of walking with Jesus Christ. We're always repenting of dead works, which number one means we're working. Number two, we're judging it. And if we find anything dead, we're turning away from it. So two classifications of dead works. Number one, sin. Sin's a dead work. Pretty simple. You can be working the works of darkness. There's a couple of scriptures that talk about have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Galatians 5, uh, I think 19, talks about the works of the flesh are these. Adultery, fornications, lasciviousness, uncleanness, sorcery, emulations, wrath, variance, seditions, heresies. And it goes on with a couple more. That's a work of the flesh. That's a dead work. We repent of those. You know fornication's a sin, right? Yeah. So don't do it. So is doing drugs. So is porn. So is theft. So is not getting a job when you're able to. Living on welfare the rest of your life when you're more than able is a New Testament sin. Second Thessalonians, Paul would have said, kick you out of the church. 
It's one of the six reasons we can excommunicate members when they refuse to get a job. Did you know that? First and second Thessalonians, it's called walking unruly, unwilling to get a job. And we're to treat you as an infidel. This is how to have your best Tuesday ever. <laughs> Every day a harvest. <laughs> Look at uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 9. This kind of confirms that some of our dead works are sinful. Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall that blood purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So these are the things that we're, we're guilty of. These are the things that we are condemned over. These are the things that our mind still beats ourselves up over. 20 years later, we think about these old behaviors and we cringe. And the Bible tells us the blood of Christ is there to purge our conscience. Uh, write this scripture down. We won't turn there because I'm running out of time. Colossians 1.21 says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Some of our dead works are just raw, wicked, and sinful, and we need to reject them. So two types of dead works, the sinful ones. Ephesians 5.11 says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Let me read you one other verse. Rome, write down Romans 13, 12. Let me read you that one. Just to show you that, not, that, that sometimes dead works are sinful. The night is, this is Romans 13, 12. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. All right, so your second category of dead works, we would just call them Good works with attitude. Good works, but with attitude. Because even if it's a good work, if it's done with an attitude, it's a dead work. And I think we all get that. That's what America used to call the teenage years. That's what mom and dad said. Boy, change your attitude. I'm going to change it for you. That's I'm standing up, but in my heart, I'm sitting down. So it's counted unto you as sitting down because it's faith. I'll pick up that trash, but I don't want to. So in your heart, it's counted as not even picking up the trash, though you picked up the trash. So the, the, this is where we really need to judge ourselves as Christians. It's a good work, but your heart is not right. And therefore, it is a dead work. This is the Pharisees keeping the law, but missing the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. They tithed on mint and anise and cumin, but they neglected the weightier manners. They kept the law, but missed the heart. Those would be dead works. Um, look at Genesis. This is the first example in the Bible of this concept. Genesis chapter four, real quick. This is where we are mostly going to have to judge ourselves to make sure our attitude is right. Genesis chapter four. Here is the first offering of the Bible. Cain and Abel come in the process of time and present themselves and an offering to the Lord. And Abel brought of the flock of his, uh, the sheep of his flock, and Cain brought of the fruit of his tillage. And God had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. Genesis chapter 4, verse 5, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. But let me stop and ask, is bringing an offering to God a good work? 
does the law permit fruit and grain offerings? I've proven to you from the original Hebrew that the word offering here is a word called minka, and it means specifically a bloodless offering. So the Lord is not looking for a sacrifice. There's no indication that even the lamb Abel brought was sacrificed. Because if we want to say they're atoning for sin, I would ask, what sin? And the prescription for atoning of sin doesn't come for another 1,400 years with the law of Moses. There's no sacrifice of sin to the law of Moses. None. So they're just both bringing of what they have. And I've also made the argument in years past, to be honest, farming is harder than shepherding. So we might even say the value of the fruits and vegetables is higher than the sheep. The sheep you just watch after, the farm takes a lot of work. God even said so in the garden. It's going to be hard getting fruit out of the ground now. So then why did God reject Abel's offering? The Lord, verse 6, the Lord said unto Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, or the Hebrew says, if you would do this joyfully, would you not be accepted? And if you do not things joyfully, or not doest not well is the negative of doeth well, sin lies at the door. We see instantly in the Hebrew, that's hard to read it in the English, that joy is what makes our works excellent. Uh, Hebrews 11 confirms this. By faith, Abel offered a more excellent. What made his more excellent? The faith of his heart. It doesn't say he offered excellent. He said more excellent, which would imply that Cain's was excellent. But faith made Abel's more excellent. So one of the things that makes our works dead is the attitude. You ever heard a coworker say, well, I'm here, but I don't want to be? You ever done the same thing at church? I'm here, but I don't want to be. <laughs> you got to be in the house of God. Not really, but you know, if I don't, Pastor, preach against me next service. You're welcome. <laughs> we get it. This is the attitude makes all the difference in the world. Paul said in Corinthians, if there first be a willing heart, then the offering is accepted, which means you can get up an offering, and if there's no willing heart, it's not accepted. It's a dead work. So this is what's critical. The foundational stone that's first given in Hebrews 6 is a repentance of dead works. Dead works are both sinful and good things with the wrong heart, wrong attitude, wrong motive. You could take Miss Kylie up here. If she gets a showman's attitude, there won't be an ounce of anointing on her worship. Though she's anointed, though she's gifted, if she gets up here and ever thinks this is her, the, the Kylie show, God won't show up. It'll be a work. It'll technically be praise and worship, but it'll be a dead work. And we'll all know it because the Holy Ghost won't manifest on it. And she'll be instantly judged by all. Or what we'll say is, was, what, was, was it just me? Was, maybe my heart wasn't right. And we'll say, it wasn't you. It's Kylie. But we've been in the same place, taking care of the babies in the back, doing hospitality. Pastor Vaughn used to preach potato salad is potato salad. That meant potato salad is a good work, but your attitude behind it made all the difference in the world. I remember he used the example one time. You have two ladies 
making a potato salad to take to the lady who just had a baby. And one lady, her potato salad is not that good of a potato salad. And the other lady, she's the master at potato salad. And the lady who's not good at potato salad, she was so excited to be able to go bless the lady who just had the baby. And she's praying for that lady while she goes to the store and gets the potatoes and the pickles and whatever else, the mustard and everything you put in there. And she's praying over that woman the whole time and praying over the new baby. And she comes home and she's having to read the recipe because she doesn't know how to make potato salad, but she's honored to get to do it. And she wants to be a blessing. And she prays and prays that she delivers it. And she delivers it and prays over the family and the new baby and goes home. And the mom at home eats it and says, whoa, it's the worst potato salad ever. But it was done with the perfect heart. Then you got the queen of potato salad, you know, 17 time Putnam County potato salad queen, always winning. She can make potato salad with one hand. She's just like a potato salad ninja. But she's put out. She doesn't even like the lady who had the new mom, but she gets tapped to bring the potato salad. So I got to make my world famous potato salad. And she does it begrudging and belly aching and moaning the whole time. Doesn't pray once, is really just complaining because it inconveniences her. And she brings a potato salad, and the mama says, This is the best potato salad. Oh, I love this. And dad loves it, and the kids love it. And she shares the recipe, and she gets no reward because it was a dead work. And the only difference was right here. Maybe a little bit of a difference to the taste buds, but all the difference was right here. And what should have been a beautiful work was dead because of the attitude. If she'd have done it joyfully, she'd have had a reward, which reminds me of Eddie's story. So let's tell Eddie's story while we're talking about dead works. Eddie should be on trial for first degree murder over how dead this work was. <laughs> years ago, I, before I was pastor, 16 years ago or so, we, we had a, a brother in the church we had kind of taken into the assembly. He had cerebral palsy, so he was not able to care for himself very well, but that didn't stop him from being very arrogant in some regards. <laughs> Maybe I was pastor because I remember he corrected my pronunciation of David one Wednesday night. You remember that? David. David. Whatever. I got an Uncle David. He calls himself David. I've read the Bible for 30, 40 years. It's David. It's David. Whatever, man. We go to clean his apartment because the, the, the van drivers said his, his house needs some help. And we go in there, and the guy collected cats and cat feces, and he collected trash. I've never seen anything like it. And we all got in there. Eddie was the van driver, so you were closer to, his name was Andrew. You were closer to him than anybody. You can't forget him. <laughs> we're going over there to do a good work. And as soon as I walked in, the smell of ammonia from the cat urine was overwhelming. And we had so many trash bags and we had rubber gloves and we just, it was overwhelming. The, the, the mail on the table had been cemented together with feces and cat urine. It was almost like a, a like paper mache. He had a leather jacket, I remember, was cemented into all that. I've, never, I've just never seen anything like it. I was really hoping I would walk in there and all the cat dander would activate my allergies and I could go home. And as God is my witness, from that day to this, I've never had a cat allergy since. <laughs> and I really think... My immune system said, we just quit. We, we just, <laughs> we, this is overload. We just, and it just died. So now I have no histemic reaction against cat dander because I used to have really bad cat allergies. I really don't anymore. 
But Eddie disappeared to the bathroom, and me and Pastor Brett, we were cleaning up the kitchen, and Eddie comes out, and I've never seen Eddie so angry. And he was mad. He was almost all but cursing. Not cussing, but cursing. Oh, you did curse, Andrew. You said, Andrew, this is disgusting. How can a grown man live like this? Well, we tried to find the crisper bin in the refrigerator, but it was gone. Who steals a crisper bin? It had been used as the cat litter box. But the cat litter box had been kicked over at some point, so the entire bathroom floor was full of cat litter, and he would shower without a shower curtain, so water was everywhere, so all the cat litter had turned to oatmeal. Just right, Eddie? Do we need to go to therapy after this? It's too late. So the running joke is Eddie burned up all his rewards in heaven with that four-hour ordeal because I've never seen Eddie that angry. You guys know Eddie. He's joyful. He doesn't meet a stranger. He's outgoing. Eddie was angry at everybody, the world, God, trees. I've never seen Eddie so mad. We just kind of got quiet and left Eddie to himself. Every time he'd come out into the kitchen, he was just angry. And I said, Eddie, man, chill out. You're, you're losing rewards in heaven. But what should have been a good work was us helping a brother in Christ. For Eddie was a totally dead work. First degree. Murder in the first. Murder. Murder was the charge that they gave him. He killed that work. He's just dead. We cleaned that place up, and the guy didn't stay much longer at the church. But it's all about the attitude. You need to make sure you keep your attitude right in whatever God has asked you to do. Because the work will get done one way or another, but if you don't, if you don't care for it, if you don't care for your heart, it'll be a dead work. The work will get done. The people will be blessed by the work, but you'll have no reward, and that'll be a dead work. You'll, be re- you'll need to repent of that. Uh, think about Judas's example. He did everything wonderful, but John even said of him, he cared nothing for the poor. He acted like he did, but he cared nothing for the poor. So there's an example of a good work that was really a dead work. Uh, how about Matthew 7? Just write down Matthew 7. And many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name done many wonderful works and in thy name cast out devils? Those are good works. But I shall say to them in that day, depart from me, you that practice inequity. I never knew you. Good works, but for them dead works. So we've got to be very mindful of this concept. Just because we're doing something good does not mean it's a good work. The heart and the joy of the heart is the missing ingredient that makes a mediocre work excellent and an excellent work disgusting in the nostrils of God. I remember years ago I was in a Baptist church and they had uh, two young college girls. I wasn't much out of college. They were pretty girls, I remember. And the one girl was playing on the grand piano and the other girl was singing, and it was, she was singing His Eyes on the Sparrow, which is a tremendous song. But as they began to sing it, you could tell these girls were full of themselves. That to them, it was like a Vegas jazz nightclub, and they were singing soulfully to entertain and perform. And God was so seriously grieved in that house. And yet, when they were done, everybody stood up and gave them a standing ovation. And I sat there in the pew disgusted because God was not... He was not pleased with their offering. And, and I was probably 24, 25 at the time, and I had to figure out what was going on. And then I, I settled upon it, and I realized showmanship. They did this to be seen. Well, the Beatitudes tell us when you give an offering, don't, don't blow a trumpet. That's a good work. Giving an offering is a good work, but to blow a trumpet makes it a dead work. 
And when you fast, don't darken your counsel as the hypocrites do for to be seen as one that fasts, but wash yourself, anoint your head so that your father who sees in secret may reward you openly. That's a good work. Fasting is a good work, but if you do it to be seen, it's a dead work. So our first foundational principle, if we're going to master this thing called the kingdom, is to judge ourselves of dead works. Dead works can become dead, excuse me, good works can become dead works if the attitude is wrong. So we're always judging our motive. And if you have to, repent of the motive. Most of the time, the work has to be done anyway. So you might as well get your heart right if you got to do it. You've got to get your heart right because it has to be done. You can make keeping your house a chore or you can make keeping your house a delight. It's all about the heart. God loves a cheerful giver. Is giving, is giving a good work? Yeah. Cheerful giving makes it an excellent work. It's all about our attitude because our attitude produces an aroma that makes it a sweet-smelling savor unto God. There's other places in the Old Testament where the Lord says, Stop your sacrifices. I hate them. The very ones he commanded. Why did he want them to stop the sacrifices? Because their heart was not right in it. So we have to make sure our heart is right. Number one, you've got to make sure you're doing some kind of work for God. But number two, make sure your attitude's right in it. If you're not doing work for God, don't worry. You don't qualify anyway. You might be dead in your worklessness. I can't understand how you can be actually born again and contribute nothing to the house of God. I don't get that. What is wrong with you? How long have you been here? Or are you like the first part of Hebrews 5? You're dull of hearing and a spiritual dimwit. You don't hear what's being said. But once you get that momentum going, you'll always have to judge to make sure your heart is right in what you preach, in how you serve, in what you wear, in how you sing, in how you play your drums, in how you serve in the back. It's always going to come back to our attitude. Let us be careful to repent of sin, attitude, and anything that would turn our good works dead and bring forth fruit that uh, proves we have truly changed our lives. And if you... If you indicate, if you find any attitude in you that's sour, begin to talk to the Lord about it. Like when we clean this brother's apartment. Lord, I don't want to be here. Lord, this is disgusting. Lord, this needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with harshly, but don't let it be harsh inside of me. This is disgusting. I didn't know a human being could live like this. Talk to the Lord. Lord, I'm, I feel tempted to be a showman. Lord, I'm feeling tempted to sing and sing for the people and not sing for you. Lord, I'm tempted to, to preach the beautiful sermon so the people will think I'm awesome and not so that you'll be glorified. Talk to the Lord about these temptations so you can fix them. Watch your attitude because that's the thing that will turn any good work into a dead one very, very, very quickly.